Thank you, everyone, for your prayers as I uh, head off to Banyo for a few months, six months or so, of ministry there. Um, it's something that uh, God has laid on my heart that I need to accept. I've been helping out at that church for the last two or three years, preaching once a month, but uh, they are now without a pastor, and um, they are looking at what their options for the future might be. It's a small, struggling congregation, probably 25 to 30 people at best, and so they need to work through that. And so part of my role over the next six months will be to help them work through that. And uh, I'll be there three Sundays a month preaching. Uh, but on the other Sunday, I intend to be here so that I maintain my contact with my home church. So uh, it's a little bit of a pull to be able to leave here. But uh, it's something that God's laid on my heart. And so uh, it's something that I feel I need to obey the Lord in for the next six months. So continue to pray for me. I need it very much. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity of coming into your presence and acknowledging your grace and your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that there are so many lessons that we can learn when we open your scripture and recognize, Lord, that this is not simply the words of men, but, Father, it is that which you caused to be written down when you moved in the hearts and lives of individuals and caused them to write down the very things you wanted us to hear. And so we don't take the scripture lightly. We come this morning in this fairly long passage of scripture and ask, Lord, that you'll speak to our hearts and, Lord, you'll help us to grasp some of the principles that we see here in the life of the early church. We thank you for the encouragement that we can draw. We thank you too, Lord, for the lessons that apply to our lives individually and as a church family. We ask, Lord, that this morning that you will speak to us by your spirit and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was once a woman who was undergoing some fairly severe chemotherapy treatment for her cancer. And of course, along with that cancer, there came the attendant side effects that uh, impacted her life. And uh, during that period of treatment, she woke up one morning and she looked in the mirror and she saw that she only had three small tufts of hair left on her head. The rest had fallen out. And so she said to herself, well, I think I might braid my hair today. And so she did, and she had a great day. The next morning when she woke up and checked herself in the mirror, she saw that those three tufts of hair had become just two tufts. And so she said to herself, I think I might part my hair down the middle today. And so she did and had a reasonably good day. The next day she woke up and she found that she only had one wisp of hair left on her head. And she said, not to worry, I think I'll wear my hair in a ponytail today. On the fourth day she woke up and she discovered that there was not one skerrick of hair left on her head. And she said, not to worry. I don't have to do my hair today at all. Irrespective of what we might be going through or facing, our perspective, the way that we look at things, makes all the difference, doesn't it? If you're a glass half full person, you will tend to look at things from a positive angle. If you're a glass half empty person, you will always see the negative, no matter what you're facing in the circumstances in which you find yourself. 
And it would be very easy for us this morning to come to this passage of Scripture with the background of what we've seen happening in chapter 11 last week and the first three verses of this chapter and come to this chapter with a sense of negativity because of what was happening in the life of the early church some four years or so after the death and resurrection of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. But what I want us to consider this morning, however, is how having the right perspective on any situation in which we find ourselves when it comes to ministry, when it comes to our service for God, will make all the difference in how we respond to the way God is working in us and through us in the service of his kingdom. I want to suggest this morning that it's important to develop a divine or a God-given perspective when it comes to life and to ministry to the calling that God has placed upon each of our lives. A perspective that is shaped and undergirded by the Word of God. And this passage of Scripture that is before us this morning, as long as it is, helps us to do this. And so the very first lesson I want us to draw from this passage this morning is this, as we consider what it means to develop God's perspective on life and ministry, is this, that what seems destructive can in fact be productive. And the reason I say that is because of that very simple yet profound statement that we find in verse 4 of our passage which says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It is important, isn't it, to reflect and to remind ourselves of the context in which that statement is made here in the scriptures. We saw last week, didn't we, a reference to the persecution that broke out upon the church following the death of Stephen. And at the very beginning of this chapter, we see a reference to Saul giving approval to the execution of Stephen. And we also read from that moment, a great persecution broke out against the church. The believers who were gathered in Jerusalem found themselves scattered. Stephen, of course, is often referred to as the first Christian martyr. And he was one of those seven men's deacons, if you like, who was chosen to practically support the apostles in making sure that the needs of the Greek-speaking widows who had been overlooked in the daily distribution of food, he was ensuring that they were, those needs were met. And see, Stephen seems to be a man, uh, a first amongst equals, who also had a great preaching ministry. And that ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders to authenticate the message. And it was this ministry that brought him to the attention of the religious uh, authorities. And they responded to a false charge of blasphemy against him by having him arrested and brought before the council. And when he gave his defence, they became enraged at the things that he was saying, the message that he was communicating. In fact, we read that they literally ground their teeth in unison at the things he was saying because he had accused them of complicity in the death of Jesus. And so they condemned him and had him cast out of the city where he was stoned to death. And at that time, Saul, later to become the Apostle Paul, was standing there minding the coats of those who were hurling the rocks at his body. And it seems that Stephen's death was all the excuse that Saul needed. And from that moment on, he was front and center of a great wave of persecution that swept the church. 
Saul was determined to wipe out this strange sect known as the Way, who claimed to be worshipping Jesus as the long-promised Messiah. He dragged them off to prison, and in his own testimony in Acts chapter 26, he acknowledges that he tried to get them to blaspheme against God, and he had others condemned to death. Saul was a nasty piece of work at this stage of his life. And the effect of his actions was that he literally ravaged the church like a wild boar or a pig that's rooting up uh, vegetation in the field. He was doing exactly the same to God's church, his God-bought people. This was a terrible time for God's people. How could the church continue to exist, let alone prosper under such circumstances? After all, Paul tells us in Galatians 1.13 that his goal was to actually destroy the church, to wipe it out completely. But you know, as we read through this chapter, we discover that contrary to Saul's expectation, what this wave of persecution in effect uh, was doing was to cause believers who were to be scattered to literally gossip the gospel as they went about their daily life. They preached the word, we read, And people responded to the claims of Christ. And that word scattered there in verse 4 actually has the idea of scattering seed in order to reap a harvest. And that was exactly what was happening on this occasion. There was a spiritual harvest being reaped for the kingdom of God as people came to faith in Christ. They acknowledged Jesus as the long-promised Messiah. And they came to faith and trust in him alone for their salvation. So what seemed to be destructive action on the part of evil men was actually being used by God to further his kingdom through the bold and the fearless proclamation of God's word. What was intended to crush the church actually brought about its expansion. You see, just before his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus told his disciples, didn't he, over in Matthew chapter 28, that they were to go out into all the world and make disciples. They were to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were to teach them to observe all those things that Jesus had commanded them. And again, in Acts 1.8, it records there, Jesus is saying to his disciples that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, They would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And yet here where they were, probably around four years or perhaps as long as eight years after the resurrection, according to some scholars, still stuck in Jerusalem. Yes, God had been doing good things, but they had no inclination, it seems, to move out and fulfill the calling of God upon them that he gave through the Great Commission. And so God uses this persecution to shake his church out of their complacency and their lethargy lethargy, and to thrust them out into the mission field. What seemed destructive would end up being productive for the kingdom of God. You see, no matter what Satan might try to orchestrate through evil actions of men, God's word is not bound And when it is preached or proclaimed faithfully by the faithful witness of God's people as they share their faith in the context of everyday life, God delights to take his word and use it to bring people to himself. 
And all too often we believe the lie, don't we? That just sharing the word of God, just sharing the gospel in particular, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, just sharing that, that somehow that's not effective. Uh, And yet, the scripture reminds us that there is intrinsic power in the word of God. There is intrinsic power in the gospel as the Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to the lives of individuals who hear. Yes, he will do great things if we are willing to be obedient and faithful to his calling upon our lives. And Saul, who was later to become the Apostle Paul, would write these words over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he said it pleases God through the foolishness of preaching, through the foolishness of the proclaimed word to save those who believe. What was it that the prophet Jeremiah said of God about his word in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 29? Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces? The writer of the Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. And even Paul himself declares that the word was the sword of the spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians, he commends the church because when they received the word of God, they received it not as the word of men, but that which it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in the lives of individuals. And the reason for that is very simple. This word is God-breathed, and as Isaiah 55 reminds us, that word will not return unto him void or empty, but it will always accomplish that for which he purposes and succeed in the thing for which he sends it. I'm reminded of the story of an atheistic uh, professor who visited the Fiji Islands a generation or so ago. He met with one of the tribal chiefs there, And he critically remarked to this old man, he said, you're a great leader, but it's a pity that you've been taken in by those missionaries. They only want to get rich through you. No one believes the Bible any more as the word of God in our culture. We know better now than to believe these fairy tales. I am so sorry that you have been taken in by them. In a very measured way, the old chief responded to this man and he said, do you see that great rock over there? On that rock we smashed the heads of our victims and we roasted their bodies in the furnace next to the rock. And if it hadn't been for the missionaries and the word of God that changed us, the gospel, you would never leave this place alive. You had better thank God for the gospel Otherwise, we'd be already feasting on you. Yes, inevitably, that which seems destructive can be productive for God's kingdom, provided we are available and are obedient to maintain our confidence in the power of God's word to transform lives of individuals as they come under conviction, as the Holy Spirit brings conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We've been so blessed, haven't we, here in Australia. We haven't had to face the sort of persecution that these believers faced. But we are feeling the winds of change blowing, don't we? 
that may impact our life and our ministry in the days ahead. There is a vocal, there is an aggressive hostility towards Christianity that is developing that may very well impact us in the days ahead. In a world in which in 2021, one in seven Christians face significant persecution, we cannot expect to be exempt from that. But should this occur, however, we can be encouraged that God will use even difficult times for his glory and for the extension of his kingdom as his people faithfully bear witness to the gospel and bear witness to their faith. And having said that, we also discover in this chapter that what seems praiseworthy can also be destructive. One of those believers who was scattered in the persecution was Philip the Evangelist, as he's later called in the book of Acts. And like Stephen, he was one of those seven men who was called and appointed by the church to practically support the apostles in their ministry. And he also found himself down in Samaria in the heart of Samaritan territory as a result of the persecution that had scattered Christians to the four ends of the world. We know, of course, from Jesus' interaction from the woman at the well and the parable of the Good Samaritan, that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a group of people that had originated uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel around the time they were invaded by Assyria in 722 BC. And many of their inhabitants were deported uh, to Assyria and then the land was repopulated with foreigners who intermarried with the remaining Jews so that they were no longer a pure race ethnically. And consequently, the way worship of God was corrupted. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as the scriptures, and they even built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which was later destroyed by the Jews. As far as the Jews were concerned, these Samaritans were heretics, and there was a deep-seated animosity that existed between these two groups over many centuries. And yet here is Philip who's been scattered. Philip, who was probably a bit of an outsider himself in Jerusalem because of his background. Here is he down here proclaiming the gospel to great effect. And a great many of these Samaritans came to faith and were baptized. As with Stephen, his ministry was also accompanied by signs and wonders to authenticate the message. And one of those who professed faith was Simon the magician, a sorcerer who practiced his craft and previously made a great name for himself. In fact, he was nicknamed the great power or the great power of God, a rival Messiah, in fact, to Jesus himself. And Simon, we read, uh, was very good at self-promotion. He was the sort of person, whenever he came into the room, he sucked up all the uh, oxygen because people paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. And amazed at the miracles that he was seeing and the signs and the wonders, he too professes faith and he's baptised and attaches himself to Philip and his ministry. We might tend to think that having somebody like this, a celebrity coming to faith in Christ, might have been a great advertisement for the cause of Christ. Imagine that large and diverse group of people who had followed him for his sorcery in which he had previously engaged. How could they now be positively influenced 
for the gospel. And you can just imagine the newspaper headlines, Celebrity Finds Christ, the Facebook post, or perhaps the Twitter feed. And when the apostles, but not all is as it seems as we look at this passage. And so when the apostles in Jerusalem hear reports of how the Samaritans were also receiving the word of God uh, and coming to faith, we read in verse 14 that they sent Peter and John down to check things out, to see what was actually going on. And as a confirmation of that historical significance of these people coming to faith in Christ, uh, we see there that Peter and John laid hands on them and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit just like their Jewish brothers and sisters on the day of Pentecost. And we see similar events happening over in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 9 with Peter and Paul's uh, ministry with the Gentiles as well. And Simon sees all of this happening. And his instinctive reaction is to want to have this same ability that the apostles seem to have to be able to lay hands on people and to convey the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so excited by that, his focus sadly was on the signs and wonders, the gift itself, rather than the giver of the gift. And so perhaps he sees this as an opportunity of cementing uh, his followers, of gaining more followers, of making money, or perhaps giving himself some more prestige. And so he offers Peter and John money if they would pass this ability onto him. And Peter rightly calls him out of his, for his sin and thinking the gift of God could be bought with money. In fact, Peter uses some very strong language in this passage in his condemnation of Simon's actions. He says his heart was not right with God. His behaviour was called wickedness and he was in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Or as the NIV translation puts it, he was full of bitter jealousy and held captive to sin and needed to repent, therefore, of his wickedness. In fact, J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of Peter's words in verse 20, where he says, may your money perish with you, actually uses these words to graphically illustrate the strength of Peter's reaction when he writes, to hell with your money. Now, there is some debate among scholars as to whether Simon was genuinely saved or not. But the language that Peter uses here seems to suggest to me that his was perhaps a false conversion, but whatever view you take, Simon's motives were clearly false in making the request he did. And Peter's was well rebuke was well deserved. Even Peter's call to Simon to repent is simply meant with a plea from him to pray for him that the terrible consequences of his sin would not fall upon him. And the question of any genuine repentance on Simon's part is simply left up in the air. Some of the early church fathers, of course, identify this Simon as Simon Magus, who later moved from Samaria to Rome and became known as the father of Gnosticism, that false teaching that was, had such an impact on the early church. He was a man who became violently opposed to the gospel. And the apostles' encounter with Simon therefore reminds us that having a proper perspective on life and ministry also involves the need to develop a discerning spirit that we might recognise error or that which is deceptive when we come across it. It's all too easy, isn't it, to get caught up in the excitement and the emotion of what God is doing 
uh, when something of it appears praiseworthy may in fact be deceptive. And we were reminded of the need for this discernment, weren't we, as we went through our series on 1 John. 1 John 4, we read these words. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This discernment we are told in the Scriptures like Philippians 1.9 and Hebrews 5.14 is that which is developed in the context of prayer and a diet of the solid food, word of the, uh, food of the Word, which allows us to have our discernment trained by a constant practice of distinguishing between good and evil. Yes, an increasing familiarity with the truth of God's Word will enable us to identify error or deception when we are confronted by it. That such discernment in the midst of a work of God's Spirit is necessary should not surprise us. Apostle Paul reminds us when he speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about false prophets in, in, infiltrating the church. He says we should not be surprised about this because even Satan himself is able to disguise himself as an angel of light if it suits his purposes. And why shouldn't his servants do the same? Satan is the great deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. And he will do whatever it takes in order to distract us and to derail us from whatever God is wanting to do in our midst that is good and holy. Jonathan Edwards was a humble preacher in the United States of America who was part instrumental in God using him for a revival that swept the New England area of that nation in the 1700s. And he actually wrote a large treatise on discerning the difference between a real work of God and that which is false in response to some of the unusual manifestations that accompanied the revival in that particular area of ministry. And he wanted to make sure that people weren't sucked in by the counterfeits that Satan was using to undermine a genuine work of God's spirit. And the essence of his lengthy treatise can be summarised in five points which will be up on the screen this morning. We don't have time to flesh them out this morning, but they could easily be the subject of a sermon in and of themselves. Jonathan Edwards, in summary, makes the point in his treatise that the distinguishing marks of a work of a spirit of God will be seen in the fact it is that which exalts the true Christ. It opposes Satan's interest. It points people to the scriptures. It elevates truth and it results in a love for God and a love for others. If what seems destructive can be productive, and if what seems praiseworthy can be deceptive, we also learn from this passage of Scripture that when it comes to God's work, what seems perplexing is inevitably purposeful. Notice in verse 26, after Peter and John begin to make their way back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel along the way in many of the Samaritan villages, that the angel of the Lord comes to Philip and he gives him a very clear instruction that he was to leave his ministry in which he was currently engaged and to head south on the Gaza road towards Egypt. 
We're not told how the angel of the Lord communicated with, with Philip, but the instruction was very clear. And to us who read this casually, it might seem a very perplexing thing for God to ask of Philip because not only was he engaged in a very successful ministry among the Samaritans, Peter and John had also played a part in the work of God's Spirit where there were still many people who had come to faith and there was much work to be done in establishing these new believers in the faith. Surely Philip's work was not yet complete in this district. After all, these Samaritans, though they purported to worship the same God as the Jews, they had allowed the worship of the one true God to be corrupted when they intermarried with the peoples the Assyrians had brought into their land at the time of the captivity. Not only that, there was a need to establish them in their newfound faith, and there was so much in their distorted understanding of God that needed to be corrected. And yet, no, here is God saying to Philip, it's time to move on. He was to head off in a new direction without knowing exactly at this stage what this new step of faith would involve in terms of his ministries. God's ways are sometimes perplexing. But can I suggest to you on the basis of what we read here that they are never without purpose? And understanding this will help us when we are similarly confronted with God's call upon our lives. We have already made reference to the fact that Jesus had said to his disciples back in chapter 1 and verse 8 that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the uttermost places of the world. And here was God doing and enabling that very thing by having Philip engage in an appointment with the Ethiopian eunuch who was on his way back to Africa. This man, it seems, was a God-fearer, a Gentile convert to Judaism who had been in Jerusalem to worship at the temple and was now travelling on his way back home, reading from the prophet Isaiah as he went. And the Holy Spirit prompts Philip to run alongside the chariot and he hears this man reading from the prophet Isaiah, reading out loud as there was their custom. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, no, how can I understand unless someone helps me? And he invites him into the chariot. And this opens up a marvellous opportunity for Philip to share the gospel and to point out that the very person that Isaiah 53 uh, is referring to, the, the person of the Lord Jesus, was the person of Jesus himself, the one who suffered and died for our sins, that through faith in him alone we can experience the gift of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. God's purpose in drawing Philip away from what appeared to be a more important ministry was that he had someone who needed to hear the good news as much as these Samaritans did. In fact, given his position and status in the court of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, a man in charge of her treasury, meant that he was a person of great influence, influence not based on celebrity or self-interest like Simon the Magician, but a man of real ability who was highly placed and well-trusted, a man of integrity whom God would be able to use for good and for his glory because of the testimony of his changed life. He was obviously a person who had a heart for God. Otherwise, he would not have travelled all those hundreds of kilometres to Jerusalem in order to worship in the temple. 
The law, of, in fact, prohibited a eunuch, a man who'd been physically emasculated from entry into the assembly of God's people. And as a Gentile, the best that he could hope for was to be able to worship in the outer court of the Gentiles, but only then if nobody knew that he was a eunuch. His seeking after God, however, was richly rewarded in a way that he could never have anticipated. And what seemed perplexing to us at first when we look at God's dealings with Philip was indeed purposeful as God sovereignly orchestrates the furtherance of the gospel in regions beyond Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. Isaiah rightly declared, didn't he, speaking of God's character, these words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Are you feeling perplexed this morning? You're not sure why God is dealing with you in the way he is? Maybe you're feeling as though God's being unfair in some of those dealings because he's leading you in a different direction that you had anticipated. Perhaps the ministry that you wanted to be involved in has found that you found that the door has been shut and God is pointing you elsewhere. That can happen to us as individuals and it can happen to us as a church fellowship as well. And at times we question what God is doing in and through us. Rest be assured this morning that though his ways may seem perplexing, they are never without purpose. And who knows what he intends to accomplish through you as an individual or through us as a church fellowship in the days ahead. And this is an important perspective to embrace as the people of God. Yes, all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And what is required is that, like Philip, we are open and obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit so that souls who need to hear the good news might be given the opportunity through the faithful witness of his people. God's ways at times may seem perplexing, but they are always good. Psalm 25 puts it this way, All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 8 following, we have recorded there an incident which occurred in the life of the great prophet Elisha, where the king of Syria was getting very narky with him because he was always warning the king of Israel every time the king of Syria was leading an attack against the nation of Israel. And so when the king of Syria finds out through an intermediary that Elisha was staying in the city of Dothan in the north, of Israel, he sends his great army along, including horses and chariots, to surround the city at night so that in the first light in the morning they could get rid of this troublesome nuisance of a prophet. And when Elisha's servant rises early in the morning, probably to go out for his morning constitutional, he looks out and he sees the great armies of Syria surrounding the city. And he has a huge meltdown and he races in panic to Elisha and says, what are we going to do? The enemy surrounded us. And Elisha seeks to reassure him by reminding him that those who were with them were greater than those who are with the enemy. He echoes the same thought that the Apostle John does, doesn't he, in 1 
John 4, he says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so Elisha prays and he asks that God would open the eyes of his servant that he might truly see the truth of what he was sharing. And God does just that. And when Elisha's servant looks out on the hills again, he sees the mountain full of heavenly horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, sufficient for any puny army that would be set up against them. Yes, his servant was seeing for the first time things as God sees them. And isn't that what maintaining a proper perspective in ministry is all about? It is to learn to see things in the way that God looks at them. And as we've seen this morning, that involves understanding what might seem destructive can be productive in the service of God. What might seem praiseworthy can in fact be deceptive. And what seems perplexive, perplexing is inevitably purposeful in the economy of God. And there is no experience of life or ministry that is wasted in God's economy. And I trust as we've reflected very quickly on this fairly long passage of Scripture this morning that the truths that we've been speaking about this morning will encourage us to develop that divine God-given perspective on life and ministry that will enable us to move forward with confidence and not negativity when it comes to the service of God. I want to close this morning with a written prayer that I came across in my preparation which captures the essence of much of what we've been speaking about this morning. And I invite you to pray with me as I read these words. You may wish to echo your own amen to these words as we go through. But let's just close with this prayer. Help me, Lord, to see things as you see them, to see you through the person of your Son as revealed in your word and taught to me by your Spirit. Help me also to see people as you see them. Clear away the clouds and the distortions of reality that I may have. Help me to see your will and not mine. Help me to be humble enough to admit it when I have been wrong or I have held on to beliefs, attitudes or opinions that are not yours. Help me to see your will. Help me to see how things should be in my life and ministry, the ministry that you have entrusted to me. Amen.